You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 215, Dr. Beth Grant and the Long Path to Restoration. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, uh, today we have with us a uh, long friend and supporter of the Global Center for Women and Justice, and I'm so excited for our conversation today. Well, I'm excited to introduce my very good friend and colleague, mentor. I learned a lot from Dr. Beth Grant in the early days of my work in anti-trafficking, but she's been a part of my life for a very long time, and I appreciate her willingness to be on our podcast. So this is Dr. Beth Grant, co-founder and executive director of Project Rescue. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thanks so much, Sandy. It's a pleasure. Well, I remember in the early days uh, having conversations about a lot of the challenges with aftercare for victims of human trafficking. And you've been a leader for decades in this. When was Project Rescue founded? In 1997. That's before we even had the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And I love the story of how it was so driven from the field. And I just want our listeners to know how we can be in the moment and do something when we get started, but maybe then later we're going to have to add some structure. But will you tell the story of how K.K. Devaraj called David? Yes. K.K. Devaraj had been a colleague in Southern Asia for a number of years. And uh, working with teens on the street in his major city, huge city. And one evening, he felt with his team to go into a very infamous, huge red light district in his city where he had never been before. He took his team there and was stunned and in tears by what he witnessed. Um, Many times we assume women and children in prostitution are there by choice. And in this case, they were exposed to an area of a city of up to 100,000 people where women and children had been sold into prostitution. That was in 1997. That night, when he met some of these women, he just threw out an invitation, an offer of trying to help in any way they could. What they said to him was, we cannot leave this place for slaves, but could you take our daughters to a place of safety because they're growing up under our cots as we serve as customers? And could you take our daughters to a place of safety? That night, they asked him to take 37 little girls, ages 3 to 12. And in in that moment, he called my husband weeping and said, this is what has just happened. We've worked together before. Could we take 37 little girls and start a home? And immediately when we heard Sandy about that need and realized how those little girls got there in their future, 
unless someone intervened. Immediately we said yes. And my husband said, absolutely, Deborah, absolutely. So without a plan, without a strategy, without really much knowledge about this, we said yes in the moment because we knew those little girls were in God's heart, every single one of them. So that was the start that night when we said yes. That was the beginning of Project Rescue, and that was 22, 23 years ago. And those 37 little girls were taken to a safe place, and that became the first aftercare home before there even was a trafficking word that we were aware of. But it was a response to that need in the moment. So you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. Oh my goodness, what a journey. (laughs) So you already have a PhD, but I feel like you've earned two or three more in the process of leading Project Rescue and growing it. How many countries are you in now? Ten. Ten countries. Yes, in Southern Asia and Europe and upcoming in Africa. Oh, I can't wait to... I expect to be invited to visit your African sites when you get started, just so you know. Okay. You have an open invitation. All right. So what I think I'd really like to talk about with restoration is that rescue is only the beginning. So how long did you keep those kids? A year, maybe, or six months? Well, some of them were with us probably at least a year to two years. Because once you took little girls who were three, four, five, six, seven years of age in that culture, and you take them out of the only community their mothers know, then you have a commitment to them to help them find uh, mental, physical, medical, emotional healing. Very holistic. We quickly learned that we had to provide holistic care that the actual physical rescue ended up being actually the easiest part of the journey. And so some of those girls really graduated from the program then when they were 18 years old. Wow. So some of them were with us, or yes, 10, 11, 12, 12, 13 years until they came to a place where they had sufficient education and or vocational training where they had a future back in society to walk into. And so many of those young girls now over these years have graduated and were uh, had the ability to do graduate studies. Some of them have MBAs. They're professional women in their community and cities. So while it was a daunting journey to start with as we were learning, over the years, you look and now you see where many of those little girls are. And it is absolutely amazing to see what can happen when holistic care is provided in a loving environment. Wow. So you joined us at Ensure Justice 2019. And for those listening, I will put the link to Dr. Grant's presentation during the plenary and also the recordings from the workshops on our show notes. But during that time, you took an opportunity to challenge our service providers, and especially our faith-based service providers, where we have lots of good intentions. And you challenged us to be more professional. You gave us some 
of the advantage of your years of wisdom. And so I want to talk through some of the themes that you addressed during that presentation. And seriously, this is going to be a great podcast, everybody, but you have to go and watch Beth Grant deliver this message as well, because it is clear in her demeanor and her presentation that we have taken a solemn, a solemn task to be responsible for victims of human trafficking, and we need to do our absolute best. So let's talk about some of those lessons that you learned. I'll let you pick it up and go from here. Well, we quickly realized that we were going to have to do some homework. You respond in the moment. You see a victimized woman or child, and you want to do everything you can to get them out of that environment. But we quickly realized that the skills that would be needed, there was a spectrum of victim needs. The victims who have suffered that kind of a trauma, they're a whole people. They're not just physical. So physically rescuing them out of the red light district was only the beginning. And we quickly realized that there were medical issues. There were extensive, extensive trauma. We needed those who knew how to do trauma counseling. We had the medical issues going on, the social issues, the stigma of this for those children. So there was a list, a spectrum of victims' needs that as, as faith-based workers at that time, most of us didn't have that kind of training. So very quickly, we started realizing we were going to have to build a network of people who had professional skills that we did not have. It was all about giving that child, that woman, a different future. And so we started identifying who are people in the city that have concern, passion to help victims of trafficking who could collaborate together with us. And we could partner together, have a mutual respect, and say, we are going to do this together, even though sometimes we wouldn't have worked together. But because our priority was the restoration of these victims, we said, we can work together. We will do that. And so we found people that often would not have been working together in the city. We began to choose to work together in order to see victims get the care they needed. So that was the beginning of a learning journey. I've said over the years, if organized crime can work together for the purposes of exploitation and greed around our world, surely good people can work together for the purposes of healing, justice, and restoration. So that was an awesome experience. And we also realized more and more how most of us were not aware of the laws in the countries in which we were working that pertain to helping those who are being sexually exploited. So we got into this and suddenly had a quick running to catch up. So each of our leaders of our local initiatives were going to be held accountable to follow those laws. So we had to do our homework and saying, what are the laws in this particular state or country that we are going to have to answer to in order to do this work professionally. We've learned how important that is. You bring up such a good 
point, and you know that I've worked in the public sector quite a bit. And one of my biggest challenges when I'm on that side of the table, I feel really challenged because people want to do something. They're there. They say, I want to volunteer, but they aren't equipped. And legally, especially if I'm dealing with children, minors under the age of 18, I can't allow them access without following legal protocols and policies that are in place to protect our children. So how do you train yeah. your leaders? Well, we, we train um, to look if they're faith-based, which is wonderful. We are part of rescuers, but we train them to look beyond faith-based, to look at government agencies, other secular agencies and NGOs that are working in the same mission to help the same population have a different future. And we, we train them, no, look outside of ourselves. Who has the needed expertise and skills? What is law enforcement doing? How can we partner with them? I think tragically, I see in much of our world and much in the United States when I come back home, I see such a division sometimes between the secular agencies that work with trafficking victims and faith-based organizations that often we don't realize how much we need each other. Mm. If, if our top priority is the rescue and restoration of men, women, and children who have been so sexually exploited to have chance for a new life and healing and freedom, we are going to have to be willing to come together and recognize the strengths. There are strengths in things government and secular agencies can do that we are not equipped to do. We need to value them in their area of expertise and respect that. On the same token, those who are not faith-based, I think sometimes are unaware that victims are a whole people. They're not just body and mind or medical. They're also, there's a spiritual dimension to the person that is created by God in his image. And so that spiritual dynamic has to be addressed as well. And that's where faith-based organizations that work professionally and with excellence can be trusted to help speak to that spiritual dimension of exploitation. I remember when I was a volunteer in Athens, lots of people know my story, and volunteering with Doctors of the World at our shelter, and having the psychologist call and ask if I could arrange to help some of the girls go to church. They had asked to go to church, and the secular program didn't have an avenue for that. So we trained volunteers and made that a possibility. So I think there are lots of opportunities for us to partner, and especially over the various reauthorizations of the Human Trafficking Prevention Act and the way that our federal agencies have grown. Every one of our agencies has a faith-based office, and we interviewed Homeland Security's faith-based office on their church toolkit and their faith leader toolkit. So there are avenues for us to get on the same 
pathway because we recognize that collaboration makes the entire process stronger. And we learn to work together and appreciate each other and not be in competition. Because there's a lot of risk for lost resources that are so scarce anyway. Which kind of leads me into my next question, Dr. Grant. Sometimes the problems around collaboration might be around competition because of funding streams to support the work that we're doing. And so how do you bring your perspective into that conversation? Well, I think we have, in fact, you referred to it a little earlier. I think if we approach fundraising as a pie with only so many pieces, there are, then we believe there are limited resources and we can inadvertently view everyone else working in this space as competitors. Mm. That works against genuine collaboration. But if we believe there are resources available out there for those who do justice on behalf of God's sons and daughters, we can celebrate what other organizations are doing in this battle. At the same time, I think funding follows integrity and excellence. If we do what we are doing well, professionally and with integrity, it is much easier to find funding. Also, I think one of the greatest gifts we can give is commend others who are doing this work well. So whether they're faith-based, NGOs, governmental, law enforcement, I think there is much space and actually benefit when we learn to commend each other, those who work well in this space. In this fundraising, we have lots of opportunity to demonstrate our integrity or, unfortunately, our lack of it. This is, I sadly, I never see greater exploitation in marketing and promotion than I do among those who are working with trafficked women and children. What does that look like? Well, for example, re-exploitation through using stories and putting girls' stories on the internet without asking permission, using photos of real victims who, in a sense, in many places, the internet is such a vulnerable place for girls then to literally be re-exploited, bound again, and re-prostituted. There's just so much danger inherent with this that we have to bend over backwards as those who work with aftercare and victims of trafficking to find ways. Yes, we want to, in a sense, obviously we have to raise funds, but how can we do that? that protects victims as if it was my own daughter. Mm. We'll have people contact us that say, we'll give and we want to help you, but not unless we can come see it. That turns it into like tourism. Well, it does. And I always, inside, I gasp and catch my breath because what our priority in working with those who have been sexually exploited is to protect them and help them heal in a safe place. So there have been times, Sandy, when we've had to say to people that I believe are well-meaning, say, 
we're sorry, but we can give you information. We can let you know how we do what we do. We can give you what you need to help you know where your funds would be spent. And we would hope we are trustworthy Mm. and do what we do with integrity. But we do not allow visits for people to go through our aftercare homes and to see the girls there. I've said to several, if this was my daughter who had been raped day after day, year after year, and traumatized so deeply, and now she was in a program or in my home trying to heal, I would not invite men and women, but especially men who are strangers to her, to come through, see her, see her bedroom, and see where she is. So in that way, we protect victims. That is our responsibility. When we say we will help them, we will protect them from that form of re-exploitation. So sometimes we find people appreciate that and say, oh, okay, we didn't understand. We, 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 we believe in what you're doing and we will help you. So I, I appreciate the fact that I think those who put that kind of pressure, I think, I would like to think they're more the exception because I think so many people, if we help them understand, will be supportive and say, yes, okay, we get it, we'll help you. Well, and I just want to reinforce, because you did say we should celebrate those who are doing this well. So I want to recommend that you go to projectrescue.com and see for yourself how carefully the website is crafted so as not to invade the privacy of victims to respect the dignity of each one that's being helped. And the other thing that I saw when I, because I always go in and review a website before I do a podcast, is that you really documented the local efforts. So we're not taking our Western ways into a community, but it shows over 400 people in the national country that are part of the aftercare team in one country, for example. And I think that's an example of best practice. Yes, for us, that is critical. From the beginning, we realized the strength of Project Rescue initiatives would be champions who were local, men and women in that country, that nation, those cities that cared so deeply about helping those who were being prostituted and exploited that they were going to find a way to help. And they are laying, those are the ones, Sandy, that are laying their lives out there 24 Mm 7 and taking risks in order to help women and children find freedom and a different life. So we say for us, that's best practice is having those national ministers, staff, professional people. They are the strength of Project Rescue in their country. That's so, so good. Okay, we have five minutes. Last question. What do you wish you'd known 20 years ago? I'm going to quote from some of our leaders on the ground who have up to 20 years of experience doing this. Mm. They said, I wish that I had known how complicated and challenging this would be. 
it would be a long journey of healing and restoration. They said, we wish we'd known more about the legal aspects of sex trafficking. A number of them said that. Mm. We wish we had known that the hardest work begins when that individual leaves the red light district. That's just the beginning of rescue. Mm. They said, we wish we knew that we would personally need to develop strength and resilience and patience. This would not be easy. It's hard work. And those we seek to help the most many times can seem very ungrateful because of their trauma. They said we wish we had a better understanding of the kinds of roles and professional skills needed to do this work so that they could have more easily found their place. They were not going to be the answer. They would only be one part of it. Others said, I wish I had better understood the unique physical, psychological, and emotional needs of trafficked women and children. Some said, I wish that I had known that even a compassion ministry needs to go through legal procedures and practices and protocols <laughs> required. Mm. That was repeated so many times. And then lastly, one said, transformational aftercare for survivors of sexual exploitation requires a very long-term commitment. It's worth it, but there are no shortcuts. Hashtag no shortcuts. We will put that in our show notes. I totally agree with you, Beth. And I know that if tomorrow were the first day of this, you and David would say yes again. Absolutely. It's the best mission in the world. Mm. Wow. Well, there's a lot to take away from this. We'll put a link to the projectrescue.com website. Is there any other resource that you would like to recommend to us, Beth? Well, I have to recommend Hands That Heal, an international curriculum to train those who do aftercare for survivors. And that was a joint project through the Faith Alliance Against Slavery and Trafficking, FAST of over 40 writers from different organizations and initiatives. So uh, that's, I was a part of that, but it's still one of my favorites because of the great collaboration that it took for that. And we will put a link um, to that and previous podcasts where we featured the Hands That Heal curriculum. I think it's been translated in like 19 languages and is such a great training resource. And Beth was the lead editor for that. So it's a great project. And we hope to see more writing from you, Beth, so we can take advantage of what you've learned. And I'd love to learn more about the process of of training in different cultures and how you've adapted. Those are really big questions that often come to my conversation in different venues. And so this has been a terrific conversation, and we hope to have you back at Ensure Justice in the future. Well, thank you, Sandy, and thank you for all you are doing and that Ensure Justice does. Thank you. You have been a pioneer. You are a pioneer, and I am so thankful for the coalitions that you are building and that you are a vital part of. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much to you both, Beth and Sandy. Sandy, I just would echo your recommendation to visit the website. I was uh, taking a look as you were both talking and just an incredible example of this done so well and just the scope of work is just profound, how much work Beth and her team have done over the years. So please uh, take a moment to visit that. Uh, All of the show notes are available online. Go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. You can find all the notes, the links for this episode, as well as every other episode we have aired since 2011. We're entering our ninth year, Sandy, together. Wow. Uh, we were just talking about longevity in this conversation, uh-huh. uh, and, and we have been in it for the long run as well. Uh, we also mentioned Insure Justice. The next Insure Justice is coming up in just under two months, March 6th and 7th, 2020. Go to insurejustice.com for more information there. And if you are just listening for the first time, endinghumantrafficking.org is where to go to find a copy of Sandy's free book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. And we will see you back in two weeks. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Dave.